I plugged in a Christmas gift, one of those Echo Dots. And she says to Alexa, what is bracketology? And she nailed it, actually. It, it, it was defined, and I would concur. It is the process by which college basketball teams are selected for and ultimately seeded into this great thing we call March Madness, the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. You don't have to be a hoops fan or even a sports fan to be a person who fills out a bracket and walks around the office or walks around your friend group or sits around the proverbial water cooler and says, I got seven of the last eight. What do you got? Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll find out how an idea doesn't always come from passion. Sometimes it comes from practicality. And we'll learn how a practical solution for one sports publication created a trend in college basketball that changed how fans follow the game. Hi, I'm John Petrules, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. And this week's idea is bracketology. We'll speak with a man who came up with the idea, ESPN's resident bracketologist, Joe Lenardi. We'll discover what led him to the idea and how he made his way to ESPN. Our interviewer is Gray project manager and podcast producer, Joey Scarillo, who talks with Lenardi about his own fandom of college basketball and how it led to a whole new part of his career. Joe Lenardi has an expansive career in college sports outside of bracketology, serving as the vice president of marketing and communications at St. Joseph's University and color analyst of St. Joseph's Sports Network, covering over a thousand games for the Hawks in his career. This is Joe Lenardi. It is a unifying thing, I think, in our country for serious fans of college basketball and casual observers of college basketball. And specifically, bracketology attempts to tell people in advance who's going to be in that bracket. The misconception, the greatest misconception, is that I'm actually an expert on picking the winners of games. But if you want to know, like today, who the seventh seed in the Midwest is going to be, then I'm your guy. And it has evolved over the years where the projections of the field in advance are almost as popular as the actual field itself because of all the debate and conjecture that goes along with it. Like there are certain times of the year, a peak period, let's say, from about the end of the Super Bowl when football's all done until that, that middle Sunday in March, which we call Selection Sunday, when the field comes out, where I would say an unhealthy number of people want to know what I think. And that is the crux of bracketology, is trying to get inside the heads of the 10 people who actually make the bracket, but in a secret ballot sequestered process that none of us have access to. So that I want to know about. What do you know about the NCAA's process for selecting those games? Oh, there's a lot to know. Right. And and a lot that's public. Okay. A lot more that's public, let's say, than 
20-some years ago when I started. Some would even say that the existence of bracketology and people like me has kind of pushed the NCAA to be more transparent in its principles and procedures. Uh, not not that this is, you know, like a life or death. You know, this is not the, the Senate bracketology committee. It's just 10 basketball people in a room trying to do the best they can and me trying to predict them and then ultimately critique them on behalf of a national fan base. How many games a week do you actually watch? You know, it's funny. Watching a game, like, start to finish, like sitting down with your buddies and watching, you know, the Super Bowl, Yeah. Um, probably no more than a couple. Because what I'm really doing is tracking results simultaneously of games being played across the country. And that is where this ha whole thing has really evolved in kind of the media slash social media age. Like when I first started, it was like, okay, week worth of games. It's now Sunday night. Run all the data, compare all the records, any data points that you think the committee members might be using, NCAA rankings, polls, wins and losses, strength of schedule, you know, mascot color, whatever you think is important in evaluating a team. Uh, full stop, Sunday night, crunch everything, come out Monday morning, here are my picks for the week. That's how it used to be, to which I can only say those were the days. <laughs> uh, because now I'm expected basically to update that seed list, that 1 to 68, in real time, depending on results on an ongoing basis. So the days of me just sitting back and watching a game, whether it's professionally or personally, yeah, not a lot of that. And, and, and every team's playing like two games a week? Every team averages about two games a week. There's 353 teams. But I'm tracking loosely sometimes 100 teams at any one time, right? Like if team number 220 is playing team number 240, I'm not lying away. Uh, if team number 240 is playing team number 40, though, then I am because 40 might lose and drop to 50. And somewhere in there might be the cut line right, right. for the quote-unquote bubble team. And, you know, now if, if you were to turn on ESPN at any point in late February or early March, you'll see on the crawler on the bottom of the screen, uh, you know, Lenardi's update. That there's a new number one seed, or so-and-so moved in and so-and-so moved out. It's almost a little bit scary. Like, I might send a message to, to an editor and see it on the screen, like, three minutes later, and I'm thinking, man, I hope I didn't screw up. I didn't type this. Like, I'm thinking I'm going to press the wrong button and, like, launch the space shuttle or something. <laughs> uh, so that part of my life has changed dramatically. You know, within a half an hour after the outcome of a key game, I can directionally see the movement of certain teams one way or another. Like, obviously, if you lose a game, you tend to go down. If you right. win, you tend to go up. Yeah. Like, you don't need a bracketologist to figure that out. But how much, and in comparison to whom, when you know, your favorite team might be in second place in the Big East and have a record of 21-6, and six, and my team might be in third place in the Pac-12 
and have a record of 22-4, and four, and you look at their wins and losses and who they beat and who they played and strength of schedule and what's coming up, and you can't make a decision. Well, the committee has to differentiate that 67 times. That and I be- do it every night of every season yeah. so that any single point in time when asked, Joe, who are the top seeds, who's on the bubble, I have an answer. I would imagine that people are asking you for predictions all the time. Yeah. On the street, uh, you know, from ESPN, everywhere. Do you love it, hate it, or is it an occupational hazard? I more love it than hate it. Uh, I mean, look, uh, I'm an extrovert, okay? I I understand my Myers-Briggs slots. I'm married to a psychologist. Now, once the tournament starts... And again, people think, oh, you must be so busy, busiest during the tournament. Tournament's vacation. Because I'm done. I'm done. I can watch. Now I can be a fan. Right? Yeah. And so just, Selection Sunday is like. Is oh, you... it's, it's the best day yeah. of the year, but not for the reason people think. The best thing about Selection Sunday is it's the day before Selection Monday. Because now there's some wrap up stuff and obviously do a lot of content and. I, I record a 60-second video on all 68 teams that runs oh, wow. on ESPN platforms, and I make my own predictions because, again, the misconception, people think that I'm good at that. Right. <laughs> now, I, I, I probably... I, I'm sure I'm better than average at picking games. I, I do like being asked for the most part because I found most college basketball fans, or at least the ones who you know, have the moxie to come up and talk. And there really doesn't seem to be much inhibition in the world these days. They're pretty bright. Yeah. And they'll want to engage. Like, I don't understand how you could view the team in the blue jersey as having a better record than the team in the red jersey. What were you thinking? Well, that's as opposed to you're an idiot and, you know, I hope a trash truck runs over your dog. (laughs) And I get... Uh. You know, a little bit of that, too. When did the passion turn into something you wanted to put on paper? My junior year at St. Joe's, uh, we got in the tournament. It wasn't even 60-14, and it was 48. And we were in, in one of those eight versus nine matchups. Um, and in those days, the one, two, three, and four got a bye because there weren't enough team to, for them to play. So we, we win an eight-nine game to play the number one. Okay, this is 1981, Dayton, Ohio, St. Joe's against DePaul, undefeated, number one, for the second straight year. We beat them on a layup at the buzzer. Wow. Okay, and, you know, just as now, those kinds of moments get replayed over and over and over and over. Well, that was galvanizing for anyone who saw it, particularly if you were affiliated with that, you know, Little school on City Line Avenue. Yeah. Or so it was thought at the time. Wow. Right? And then I, I re- and, and I even remember thinking when the seedings came out that year, and it was no big deal like it is now. They just released it to newspapers, and the next day you saw it in the paper. But I remember thinking, ooh, 8-9. If we win, we could be one of those miracles. Like, there was no thought that, like, we were going to win the national championship. Like, that just wasn't really conceivable. Although, we did win another couple games after that, and got to the Elite Eight and were a game away from the Final Four, which, ironically, that year was being played at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. 
Had St. Joe's made the Final Four, they would have played it at the Spectrum. Uh, 1981. So at that moment, like my interest in the tournament spiked. And how did it happen that the seating and the pairings and all that worked out the way it did? So I always kind of followed it. You know, after college, I worked for a, a daily newspaper where we grew up, the Delaware County Daily Times, and I covered the local teams. And generally in a given year, a couple, three of them made the tournament. So you were tracking, you know, I covered Villanova in 85 when they won. Temple was number one in 1988 and got to the Elite Eight. LaSalle had Lionel Simmons in 1990, scored 3,000 points. And they played that Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, Loyola Marymount team that came to Philadelphia and scored like 4,000 points in 45 minutes or, you know, whatever it was playing LaSalle and St. Joe's on a trip and winning both because they were really good. So, you, you know, by the mid-90s, I was following the brackets really closely. And it was, you know, some people collect stamps, I guess. Right. Or, or, you know, I, I was involved during most of this kind of post-college, early professional period with a national college basketball publishing Company is maybe a little bit too strong for it, but we we produced something called the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook, which mm -hmm. was considered to be the Bible of college basketball. Uh, it was not a magazine; it was a phone book. Oh wow! Basically, preseason, thick, like no pictures, all words and charts and stats for the hardcore fans. Like, if if you wanted to know about the sixth place team in the Big Sky Conference, we had it. Right. If you bought a magazine, you'd get, you know, Duke and Carolina and sure. Kentucky and Kansas and whatever. And to the extent that I've actually invented anything in all of this, for which I'm frequently given credit that may or may not be justified, during my period of, of being the owner and editor of this company, the early 90s through the mid 90s, we, we decided to add a postseason tournament version of the phone book that would come out after after the pairings on Sunday night and get in your grubby, grubby little hands by noon on Thursday when the main bracket begins so you could really study. Because we weren't giving you the thumbnail paragraph on, you know, Wake Forest. We were giving you 2,000 words and every stat, trend, and prediction that wow. our writers from around the country could derive. And think about it. This was an 80-page book being done overnight and shipped. You know, the, this was like early internet. Like Al Gore, I guess, hadn't really invented it yet. <laughs> okay? So th there was no way to get this information easily. Okay? You couldn't just Google, click, here we go. And the very first year we did it, which was 95, um, we had maybe 100 teams ready to go in this book that was going to be 64 pages, one on each team plus another 16 pages of, you know, filler, I guess. Yeah. And history and, you know, me expounding on whatever. Uh, well, we lost money the first couple of years because we were paying to get teams produced that we didn't use. So, brilliant business mind at work. <laughs> Follow this. How does one you know, get revenue to exceed expenses 
you try to increase revenue and or reduce expenses. Well, suppose we were only preparing 80 teams or 70. The printing, the writing, the typesetting, the copy editing, the stats, the faxing, the pic just everything, right? So I thought, well, there's got to be a way to narrow the field here. This is where bracketology really began. And it wasn't passion, it was practicality. Like, this is way too much work, and we're losing our shirts. Okay? So, started studying the process and talking to anyone and everyone who could enlighten me slash us on that process. So, you know, maybe the next year we're doing 85 teams, and then 80, and then 75, and then 70. And then one year, you know, cut the corners too much, and I think twice in the history of that 10 or 12 year run with that book a team came up on the board that we hadn't prepared and then we were really <clears throat> up against it but by then I was smart enough to like have a guy or two in the bullpen warming up so while we were prepping like the other 62 uh hey go get me western Michigan or whatever whatever the surprise was and that resulted in basically memorizing and internalizing the principles and procedures of the NCAA that are now a public document. Yeah. Uh, in addition to learning, you know, they, there were some committee members at that time who were gracious enough after the fact to share their thoughts. Uh, and, and I would pick their brain and try to be inspired by yeah. smarter people. Yeah, of course. Of uh, course. And, and uh, with no, no forethought, none whatsoever that, the bracketology piece would become the thing. Like, the book is no longer. Right. We publish a version of it on ESPN.com under the ESPN Plus umbrella. Uh, and I assign the teams and make predictions, but I'm not editing it anymore. I, I don't know when I would do that. Right. So how long from the book to ESPN calls you up and says, right. we need you to talk about bracketology? The... The, the the two were kind of linked for a while because they were ESPN's research department was one of the three biggest customers of the book, the postseason book. Their research department, now they don't need a book because they have an army. The CBS research department, they don't need the book. They have an army and the internet. And and this last part is purely hypothetical. I wouldn't want to ascribe motive to anyone. But it went to a lot of places with a Las Vegas zip code. I'm sure they were libraries. Because I don't, you know, I didn't deliver them personally. Right? There's nothing illegal about it. and nothing illegal about publishing a book. ESPN.com, the early days of it. You know, because they were buying the book, we were like kind of maybe gave them a discount if they would run my along-the-way projections in February and March and put an 800 number to order the book. Like, this was no online commerce. Like, you couldn't click and buy it. Like, we managed to sell ten or 15,000 books in a 18-hour window, like, with an 800 number. It was like ESPN was getting you as a research department. Correct. And they were helping you sell a book to that, really yeah. re sports fans who were really into it. Now, you had to go like 71 clicks into the site to find these projections. Right. And there was no like fancy graphic bracket and 
my picture and click here for a video on Zion Williamson or, you know, none of that stuff in those days. I was lucky, like, if I spelled Iowa State right. <laughs> uh, but the projections, however deep and secluded they have, may have been on the site, people found them. And they found them like they were digging for gold because there was nothing like it. And I know this because, you know, my email address would be at the bottom of the page. And I would get, like now, what you would get, you know, tweeted at or post this or that or sure. the other thing. Like my, in, you know, within an hour after each new bracket went up, once a week in those days, not like every 45 minutes. So I'm in my office one day at St. Joe's. My real job, I was the head of communications for the university for 30-some years. Doing all this nights, weekends, and on the side. One Friday afternoon, I'm in my office. I think doing what, you know, a lot of guys do on Friday afternoons in their office, which is read sports and not work. I'm just saying. I've, I've heard people do that. I've heard that. I've heard, I've heard that. that the nose and the grindstone go in different directions at certain times of the day. So the phone rings. Please hold for the governor. And I'm like, the governor of what? It is the governor of Iowa, right? Like, like this. I'm just a guy in yeah. an office in Philadelphia. Iowa wasn't in the bracket that day, and he didn't like it. And I pictured he and the guys, you know, they didn't want to work Friday afternoon either, so they're, you know, they're probably ordering pizza and sitting around, clicking on one computer that they're all sharing, mm -hmm. right? Oh, that Lenardi, he's an idiot, let's call him. So somebody says, well, I know he works at St. Joseph. Hey, look me, here's the governor of Iowa. And he, he goes on his, you know, kind of state of the union. And he said, what do you have to say for yourself? And I think I said something like, slow news day in Iowa? <laughs> right? <laughs> but then we got into a conversation about, and I remember, he's like, well, we beat Indiana twice and you have them in. And I'm like, well, but that's not really the factor that the committee is necessarily looking at. Because in the non-conference portion of the season, you played 43 cupcakes and, you know, the little sisters of the poor. So your overall record just isn't good enough. Uh, I did not get the keys to the city. And uh, I suspect I'll never go to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> but that's... That was when I learned that fan is short for fanatic and that that's okay. I can imagine that that to do that, to take the idea of, you know, the book and working with ESPN would take a lot of courage and, and, and at least some tenacity. And what sort of sparked that courage to, to bring bracketology to life? You're right. I, I was certainly chasing and pitching to them in the early days more than they were clamoring for me. So sometime between, let's say, 95, 96, when the first projections went on their website and the early 2000s when someone said, let's put that guy in front of a camera, okay? Again, I was probably chasing them and not feeling particularly courageous. Uh, but a lot of people saying to me, hey, Joe, ni nicely, you're smarter than those guys. Like, 
you're right a lot. And the book was incredibly popular, the postseason book. Like, I looked up in one of those years, and, you know, there's Jim Nance on the desk, CBS, you know, during the tournament, and there's my book sitting right there at his fingertips. And I'm going, like, what's missing from this picture? Me. Without, look, we all have a healthy ego, but I never kind of saw myself as the guy on TV, in part because I had a real job and a family and a mortgage and a dog and a cat or whatever. Never a cat. And I was a print reporter, grew up as a print reporter at a time where we looked disdainfully upon the electronic media because they were the Ken dolls and we were the, you know, roll up the sleeves, get your hands dirty, smart guys, right? Let's just say. But, you know, we'd be sitting in there Year after year, the 50 hours that a half dozen of us crammed into an office to do the book. Uh, and, of course, the TV's on the whole time, and there's, you know, Digger Phelps or these other people on TV saying who's getting in and who's getting out. And they're, they're wrong a lot. Not because they're dumb. They're anything but dumb. They just don't know the process or are invested in the process or have this kind of you know, night after night insight of how the season evolves, which has everything to do with how it will end. So it's easy to make a prediction, right? For, well, so for these guys, for, for, for these guys. Right. They're just watching the team and going, yeah, they played great today. They're getting in. Right. Without remembering that in November, they lost three games in a row to, you know, like the one-legged donkey troop or something. Right. And, and I remember that because I got a spreadsheet and it's, it's like a big red check mark. I would get on ESPN radio a lot. They would call. So I was creeping toward recognition, yeah. if you will. And then in the early 2000s, ESPN News was born as a channel. And in its infancy, very few people remember this because it didn't impact them. But in its infancy, it was seen as a television version of ESPN.com. It was trying to drive web traffic with stats and charts and geeky stuff. And, and then they started to put, like, the, the, the geeks who made the geeky stuff in front of the camera. They put me on ESPN News. I went to a little booth in Philly, not unlike this sound booth where we are today. And I looked into a camera. It was an uplink facility. I can't see them. They can see me. There's an anchor in my ear. And the guy, the producer just said something like, when you hear music, that means we're rolling highlights. I'll say a team and you talk about that team. It was Duke and Maryland were both one seeds out of the ACC. So Maryland, boom, I start talking. 10, 15 seconds, I don't know, I hear my ear. Duke. So I know now they changed the highlight. So uh -huh. now I'm talking because I can't see it. You can't it. see anything. Now, nowadays, of course, there's monitors everywhere. And you even sometimes there's a delay, but you can at least, like if they go from football to roller skating, you know to change your topic. <laughs> right? And and this coincided with making the bracket its own section on ESPN.com with my picture and click here to get a team's record and Joe's analysis and boop, boop, boop. And when that launched, that page launched, it did like, I don't know, a quarter of a million hits in an hour and a half. And somebody somewhere, like, I don't know for nothing about web traffic in 2002, or even today, really, 
somebody probably said, hmm, this is good. People want this. Let's get them on TV. And, you know, kind of, kind of cre- every year crept along to a little bit more exposure, never intending it to be a TV product. And here we are. It's hard to imagine that anybody could critique the idea. But, I mean, along the way, was there anybody who, you know, was a critic of the idea? What did they say? Like, at what point did hmm. you receive criticism of bracketology? I mean, was there anybody who doubted you, doubts your capabilities? Well, if you look at my Twitter timeline every night. Yeah. Uh, but but you're, you're speaking in a, in a more generic sense. Correct. Of... Right, not, you know, not like, like Iowa this week. Yeah, but... Right, because there's always an Iowa and right. there's always a this week. Right. Um, and just for fun, like like if by the end of this podcast I were to tweet that, you know, Kentucky's on the bubble, <laughs> I might not get to my cab, <laughs> right, without someone suggesting about members of my family that I don't even have. Sure, yeah. Right? But, but yeah, I think that there were some quote-unquote basketball people, let's call them players and coaches, or ex-players and coaches, I wasn't in the club, right? Like, yeah. Like, and, and they're, they're right. I'm not in the club. Like, I never played a real game of basketball. Uh, my one attempt at coaching was my daughter's CYO team in Drexel Hill back at home, and we went 0-15, so obviously I stunk at that. But 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 you don't necessarily have to be a practitioner. Like, I'm not m- really expounding on the X's and O's of basketball. I'm an expert on a scientific process, if you will. Right? Like, like I could be a weatherman and not know why the sky is blue, but really understand the confluence of wind barometric pressure and altitude and say it's going to rain because of those factors. Like, I'm not talking about the cake. I'm talking about the ingredients. That's a great way to describe it. I, and, yeah. and I think that most people, if given the opportunity to get past their fanaticism about a particular team or issue, would go, yeah, he's probably on to that. And it has helped over the years that people who've been in the room, uh, you know, I'm in New York City now, the room where it happens, <laughs> the committee room, right, have come out and said, you know what? He doesn't have an agenda. He's fair. And he gets it. Now, we might, look, it could be you and I and eight other people trying to vote on 68 things. The chance that we're going to agree is pretty slim, especially when you get down near, you know, 66, 67. Look, your team number 69, my team number 66, we could argue about it until, you know, next New Year's. And there's no right or wrong, really. Uh, and, 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 and I've never let my own, at least I hope, my own preferences get in the way. Like, and and the, 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 the way I kind of like to prove that is, you know, I broadcast the St. Joe's games and have for 35 years. If I had a choice every year on who I'd like to see win, that would be pretty much first on the list. Well, you know, we make it about once every four years on average. I'm not putting this in the other times. And I've never inflated our seed. Every St. Joe's has made it seven times in the bracketology era, and I've hit their seed exactly each time. 
Well, okay then. Because I'm following a process that doesn't involve my likes and dislikes. Like when, when I go in the air, people are thinking, oh, he wants that team in. No, what I'm saying is this is what I think they're going to do with this given data set. And it's a big difference. There's a thousand other people analyzing the game who are going to tell you what they think should happen when the picks come out. I'm saying this is what will happen based upon their own history. So they may deviate from that history, in which case we'll have to adjust our method going forward. But, you know, I'm the lawyer with the case law book going, here's what's most likely to happen. And when you take that part and you take your own, I want X, Y, Z to happen out of it, it's just a lot easier to sleep. You've had an awesome career in, in college sports, and I'm sure you've met a lot of people along the way. Has anybody given you any piece of advice that has really stuck with you that you sort of think about often or live by? Well, I, I, I always have subscribed to kind of the follow your passion philosophy, if you will. When I, like I'll talk to school groups or nonprofits or, you know, charity organizations or whoever asks. Sometimes paid corporate gigs where I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be the motivational speaker. You're asking me where my motivation comes from. I think it comes primarily from a sense of gratitude. Like I get to do this cool thing. And you know, now this year is my first year of doing it without another full-time real job. Like I'm, you know, I'll be 60 this year. I'm the last one's a senior in college, like I'm starting to see, you know, that less is more, right? And this is good. Uh, hopefully my golf handicap will begin to reflect that, you know, time freedom moving forward. Probably not, but again, a man can dream. And, you know, I've just always believed that if you do what's next, like what's right in front of you, as well as you can, the rest will kind of take care of itself because it really is all we've got. Like somebody said, well, how did you plan to blah, blah, blah? There was no plan. Like, I'm not that smart. <laughs> and I think I'm pretty smart. Right? Like, like when I started this, there was no internet. There was no wall-to-wall -wall college basketball on TV. There were like five games a week. And, you know, I was going and covering a game and I was covering high school football in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and trying to get the score right and get my story in on time and not screw up. But I took it seriously. Like, I think you can take your work seriously without maybe always taking yourself seriously. You know, if I have a bad day at the office now, I get a team wrong. Like a surgeon has a bad day. It's a bad day, right? Like, and I'm just grateful for that and, and maybe want to use it like I, to give back a little bit. Like I love talking to youth groups and, you know, if I could go around in the off season saying, follow your passion, you know, find what you love and go after it with all your heart, that would be plenty for me. Particularly if it was, you know, the dinner after a golf outing, I would be do that in a beach house. I'm not really chasing like some material sense of I don't know what. Uh, I hope ESPN stays in the 
college basketball business long enough for me to retire. <laughs> I'm reasonably hopeful of that. Uh, and I also am completely aware of the fact that I've probably now done it longer than anyone would have had a right to expect. I'm probably past second base. I don't, in, in, in my professional life sure. time, maybe even, you know, sliding into third. But as long as I still feel energized, like, it's pretty cool to walk into a game on February 20th, wherever, and have people come up to you because they want to know something that maybe only you know. And I suspect that someday the sizzle of that will shrink. But it hasn't. And when I hear the band play and the whistles blow, I'm still pretty excited to be there. That's great. And, you know, like, I'm just grateful. All right, so, Joey, have to ask, did you get any predictions from Joe? I did, in fact. Uh, first, I asked Joe about where he sees bracketology going in 5, 10, 15 years. And his answer surprised me, actually. He said that the major changes to bracketology will not be to bracketology, but rather where the NCAA goes with the sport. Um, we won't see change right away, but over time, as the rules around big money sports change, so will the ecosystem around it. And John, don't worry, that wasn't the only prediction I was able to get out of Joe. I was sure to ask about your Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> and All here, right, right on. And here's okay. what he had to say. When Ohio State has its A game, their final four good. Their biggest rival for life is Michigan has the number one seed, the best fight song in the history of college sports. <laughs> and I would like to know why Ohio State lags so far behind in that area. But I would change my mind if I got to dot the I. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, I definitely do not agree with his assessment of the <laughs> fight song ranking, but uh, I love that assessment. When they got their A game on, I do think they're, they're a Final Four team. All right. So where can we learn more about bracketology and Joe Lenardi? Well, tune into ESPN any point between January and March, and you're bound to see Joe talking about which teams he think will make the tournament. Uh, but you can also go to ESPN.com slash men's college basketball slash bracketology for Joe's picks. And they also have predictions for the women's tournament on ESPN.com as well. Um, and Joe on Twitter is at ESPN Lenardi. All right, that's great. So that does it for us. Thanks again to Joe Lenardi for contributing his part to the slightly lower productivity around the office in mid-March. So if you'd like to hear how other creators, founders, and inventors thought up their ideas, be sure to subscribe to Gray Matter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to rate and review an Apple Podcasts, but more importantly, tell a friend. The more folks that listen, the more ideas spread. If you like what we're doing, let us know. We love hearing from you. Follow Gray's social pages for more information about Gray and upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrulis, produced by Joey Scarillo and John Dillon, mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Townhouse Studios. Additional support from David Canavan, Christina Hyde, Grace McDougal, Andy Yancho, John Bicknell, Lydia Dizon, Abigail Hofflinger, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.